Father, we pray indeed that the message of Christ would dwell among us richly as we look at these verses, as we think through what they meant and so what they mean for us. In your Son's name, Amen. I'm aware as we begin that there are many different people in the room. Um, Some of you are just visiting. You're here um, because of the curries, and we give you a warm welcome. Um, Some of you have been here for the last few weeks and months with part of this series. I'm going to try and kind of gather us all into the same place and catch you up um, so that we understand where we've come from. Um, We're sort of partway through a series in the autumn through Paul's letter to the Colossians. But more than that, within that series, we're partway through a little mini-series, sort of chapters 2 and 3, thinking a little bit about why, as believers in Jesus, why, as Christians, sometimes change is so slow in coming. Last week we thought about the imagery of an an inmate who had been in prison for a decade. They were locked up and then they were free, but they were struggling to live in that new life, that new status. They were still cautious and anxious about people they didn't know. They were unsure how to fill their days in new routines. They heard a bell and thought it was the dinner bell and thought it was time for food. Everything is new, but muscle memory is hard to forget. Why does it take so long for us to change? Why do old habits die so hard? Why are new habits in a new life not as simple as we think they might be? Well, so says Paul, for the believer, for someone with this new life, we're not as new as we sometimes think we might be. And so he's been thinking, and with the Colossians, trying to help them understand why some of this is, but also what they can do about it, how a different mindset can help them. So we saw a couple of weeks ago, the first thing was that um, we said they have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. That is, they have a new king now. And so what does it mean to be a part of that realm where you don't belong to you anymore, but you belong to him? What does it mean to live there? He reminded them as well, if you were here, um, we thought quite a bit about what it means to be in Christ, this idea of faith union with Christ, as if you have been joined to him forever now. When he died on the Friday, you died with him. When he was raised again on the Sunday, you were raised with him. The old you has gone, the new you is here. You are in him and so live like that now. The old has gone. You're no longer in prison anymore. You have freedom. Don't jump when the bell rings. But then last week, if you remember, if you want to flip back to chapter 2, do you remember there was... There was Paul sort of blasting them for all kinds of things they had been up to, all kinds of things they were trying as they were seeking to live as these um, new people. There were rules and regulations. There were kind of mystical experiences going on. There were diets and special days. And Paul said that they look wise. They look wise. But actually, they're just earthly. They, They are based on earthly wisdom. They will never do the things that you Colossians want them to do. That's not what they're for. It may be they weren't actually bad things in themselves. Elsewhere, Paul will speak quite warmly about similar things in different contexts and different situations, but it's just not what they were meant for. Imagine um, 
I have to say I'm slightly guilty of this. Imagine you're a DIY enthusiast and you're trying to put up a shelf. And there you are with your spirit level trying to drill into the wall. It doesn't work. Or imagine you're, you're using the hammer to get the screws in because you haven't quite got the right thing. Well, Paul says those things are not designed to do that job. Well, so the things that the Colossians were getting caught up with were not designed to do those jobs. They have, remember 2.23, the last verse in chapter 2, they, had, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That's not what they're for. They won't work. Because the old self is like a tank, we said, a huge army tank. And here we are, starting a war against it with little pea shooters. That's not how you defeat the flesh. That's not how it works, says Paul. It's worth at this point just not mishearing what I say. That is, Paul doesn't say effort is not needed. Paul doesn't say it doesn't really matter what you do. We'll see that in a bit because right through chapter 3, he will give us things to do. But what he, he has been saying, what he has been saying, is if you want to grow up as believers, then use the right tools for the job. Don't try and do things that you think will work that aren't meant for that. Rules won't help in fighting the old self, says Paul. And therefore, he told us last week, it's not what you do, it is what has been done. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He urges them to remember things above, not just when life is hard, not just when we need a bit of hope, not just when we're finding things really difficult, but all the time, set your minds on things above since you have been raised with Christ. And that all sounds well and good here, doesn't it? But we have life here now. And we've got to get the car fixed at the garage. And you've got to hoover the house and get your homework in on time. And try and sort out that annoying mobile phone contract because they've been taking more money out of your account than they're meant to. And then there's washing up and there's hitting that deadline at work and there's social media and getting to bed on time and the stuff we want to watch on TV and family and life. And, and those things aren't bad, but they take our attention and they captivate our hearts and they become who we are. And before we know it, we've forgotten 3 verse 1 that we are seated with Christ. We forget to set our hearts there. Our minds there. One um, friend this week, I was chatting this stuff through with a fellow pastor who's very helpful on these things. He he says when he teaches on this stuff, he, he describes it almost as if we have a, a secret identity in Christ. But we forget it. We forget who we really are. And so as a church. With Paul, we've been trying to think through a little bit, not just who we are in Christ now, but where we are with him now. Letting our reality there shape who we are here. And so today we're in chapter 3, 
And there's a whole load of things that Paul will talk to us about. There's the first half is primarily, it seems, negative things. He talks about putting to death certain things. And then he'll talk from about 12 onwards, maybe just before that, but he'll talk about more positive things, putting on stuff, so that when the bell rings, we don't think it's dinner time anymore, so that we become who we are now. And so the first chunk from 1 to 11, he will say, put the old life to death with the gospel. And how do we do that, Paul? Well, I think we're just going to zoom in on three things that he picks up on to help us with that. Again, I'm aware as we do this that we're just sort of picking scabs slightly. That's why our home groups are so important, because there you get the opportunity to think and to wrestle and to pray and to chew these things through together as community, together as church family. What are the three things? And the first one is, remember what sin really is. And I say this carefully and I say this humbly, but I think there can be a danger that we are reluctant sometimes to call a spade a spade. We struggle to call sin out, whether in us or in others. We, we like to blend in. We, we don't like making a fuss. We're conflict avoiders at times. And even the, the idea of sin in our, in our culture at this point is, is alien most of the time. In a world where everything is relative, where ideas of God are relative, where truth is relative, Paul says within the church we must be different. And so verse 5, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. See there verse 5, the language of earthly again. Verse 2, remember we're not to set our minds on earthly things but more than that verse 5 we're actually to put those earthly things to death to kill them to be done with them now you don't need me to tell you this but the kind of stuff paul is talking about in verse 5 sets us as believers profoundly against our culture at this point doesn't it in a culture that is increasingly graphic and deviant, where porn is rife, where people are objectified, where sex is seen as a simple act and that is it, where what we do with whomever we want to, when we ever we want to, as long as there is consent and you are over 16, that is the mantra. That is what the world believes. It's a far cry from the biblical sexual ethic of of sex being for heterosexual marriage, it makes us look archaic, it makes us look old-fashioned and weird, and God is a bit of a prudish, boring killjoy. God who needs to get with the program. It makes us look weird. It did for then, for Paul, as he was writing into a, a culture rather like ours, and it will do now for us. I think it's striking. Some who have bought the lie... Some who have tasted and realized and they've been burnt and bruised, they see sex isn't just a physical act. They see it's far more profound than that. People get hurt and broken and even decades later there are skeletons still there. I wonder if some are beginning to question that prevailing narrative of our culture. Maybe increasingly so with the bad news at the moment that's going on and there'll be more in the weeks to come. You can be sure of that, whether it's Hollywood or politicians or universities even. 
Marilyn Monroe, um, decades ago, in a very honest moment, said this. She said, a sex symbol becomes a thing. I just hate to be a thing. I have never liked sex. I do not think I ever will. It seems just the opposite of love. Isn't that striking? And Paul says, unless we remember what sin is, and unless we stop trying to justify our earthly nature, verse 5, unless we remember, verse 6, who God is and his goodness and his justice, because of these, the wrath of God is coming, then, then we won't ever grow up as Christians. We won't ever be able to fight the flesh, to restrain sensual indulgence. 2.23. Becoming like Christ will not happen. And I reckon you know as well as I do, the problem is we don't put them to death. And we kind of like keeping them alive, maybe, and we play around with them and we get drawn back into them and we kind of quite like hearing the prison bell at times because there were certain things about that old way of doing stuff that we quite liked. Paul says, put them to death, kill them. I'm struck as well by the end of verse 5. And greed which is idolatry. No one thinks they're greedy. If we're honest, whether it's the same sort of arena as he's been speaking about earlier in the verse, the kind of sexual arena, that's the sort of greed that's going on, or whether it's simply the greed of wanting more stuff, the... The gadgets and outfits and shoes and money and power and friendships or greed for all kinds of things. What, what are you greedy for? Are you greedy? I won't do a hands up. Isn't it easy to find greed in other people and to point it out in them rather than in us and our own hearts? Paul says greed is idolatry. It's it's turning away from God towards other things and thinking they will satisfy us, but actually they don't. And it's earthly living again. I think these are hard things, aren't they? Paul is there with a bit of a scalpel in our hearts, knowing what we're like. I'm afraid it doesn't finish there. In verse 8, he moves on to how we're to speak as well. I think primarily that's the focus, verse 8 onwards. The theologian John Calvin said, From first to last, the tongue remains our biggest challenge. And so verse 8, Now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, verse 9. The words that come out of us reveal what's going on inside us. They reveal where our hearts, where our minds are set. And if our hearts and our minds are on us, us and earthly things, then we will naturally slide into anger, rage, malice against others when they annoy us or when we don't get what we want or when we feel mistreated or overlooked or sidelined or hard done by or slander or filthy language as we talk about them or we retaliate. The words that come out reveal what's inside. They reveal where our hearts and our minds are set. Ouch. So remember what sin is, says Paul. 
Secondly, remember who you really are now. And we've seen this in previous weeks, but, but we're to be a people who remember our new identity. Because we are in Christ people, because we are new people joined to him by faith, receiving life from him with our secret identity, be who you now are. And he peppers that right through the text again and again and again. It's like a drumbeat. So verse 1 to 4, we've already seen it, but verse 5 as well. The implication there, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, it's a thing of the past. It's in the old you. It's not you anymore. It's not the raised with Christ you. Or verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but not anymore, yeah? That's gone now. You, you've moved on now. Or, or verse 9 to 10, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of the creator. It's almost the language of clothing here from Paul. You've taken off your old self with its practices. You're putting on a new self. You're not who you were anymore, but you're not who you will be either. But live life now as an in Christ person, setting your mind on him. Increasingly shaped by your new identity in him. Put on the new self. Don't try and live as if you've got the old clothes on. I have to be careful here because I know we've got some in the room. But imagine you're a surgeon. Um, imagine you're a surgeon, but you've just had a career change to become a surgeon. And you used to work in sewage. You literally spent your day down the drains. It was vital, disgusting. You were clearing out fatbergs and those kinds of things under the streets of Oxford. You're up to your waist in the kind of stuff you don't particularly want to think about. And you turn up to your new job as a surgeon in your old clothes. Can you imagine that? You stink. It's unpleasant. There are dirty nails. You've got flies buzzing around you. Every time you step, you leave this footprint behind you. It doesn't work, does it? It's not appropriate for your new identity. The old you doesn't work anymore. Well, so you believe it in Christ, says Paul. You, you've taken off your old self. You've put on your new self. What are you doing living like that now? Come on, you're not into sewage. You're into surgery. And then the bell rings and we think it's dinner time. And we're so prone to forgetting who we are now. And we find it quite easy to turn up to our new job wearing our old clothes. What is the answer? What does Paul give us as the answer? So remember what sin really is. Remember who you really are now. Thirdly, remember Jesus is really enough. That is, when we're faced with that trigger or that heat that normally knocks us over the edge, the bell that rings and we think we're going to go for dinner this time, because that's what we used to do, what is the answer? Why do we even have these little projects going on? I think it's there in verse 11. You get it just snuck in at the end of verse 11. It's kind of a transition in the passage, actually. Suddenly we see this is not an individual thing. It's not just about a new self or a new nature or a new person. This is a new humanity. So there's no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. 
loads we could say there. The reality of the diverse church, whether in terms of social status or ethnicity or language or religious background even, but the basis for that church is Christ is all. And he's pulling us back to chapter 1 when he says Christ is all. Do you remember as David preached to us from 1.15 to 23? Jesus is the centre point. He is the centre point of creation and of recreation. He is the centre point of the world and of the church. Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. He is all. He can unite all those kinds of people, verse 11, but more than that... He is sufficient for us to live for our God. And when we feel that sin is tempting us and we feel like giving in, Christ is all. He is enough. And when it looks pleasing to the eye and it promises to satisfy us and and it's attractive and alluring and whispers to us, come on, come on, this is how you used to do it. Christ is all. He is enough. He is better. And if we get it wrong again, Christ is all, he is enough. And when we feel we are too far gone again, Christ is all, he is enough. And we look back with regret again, Christ is all, he is enough. So you've been raised with Christ. Now put the old self to death by remembering what sin is, by remembering who you are, and by remembering who Christ is and that he is enough. But more than that, from here on inwards really, this week and next week and beyond too, we're to live the new life of the gospel, 11 to 17. Do you know the huge danger as we go away from here and from passages like this, and even from various passages in the New Testament, is that we've got this danger of of fruit stapling. We look at verse 12, and we see, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And we spend the week trying ever so hard to be more compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. And we staple on fruits as if that's how we do it, if that's how these things grow. And we grit our teeth and we get on with it. And I will do this. I can do this. I'm going to be more compassionate. Problem is, that's not how trees or people grow fruit. Stapling fruit on doesn't last that long. I've never tried it in a real tree. But I told it doesn't last that long. That's the first problem. The second problem is that's not what the passage says either. See, we don't look in, we look up. We set our minds above on earthly things, on who we are now in Christ. We remember that we are, verse 12, God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And because we are loved and accepted and secure and treasured and thankful and in him, so we're free to treat others the way he treats us. Isn't that striking? You look at Christ and you see, verse 12, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, personified. Imagine, imagine being a church full of people like that. Imagine the difference that would make. We're compassionate and kind, not just seeing hurting people and their needs, but actually generously meeting them. 
humility, both aware of our own failings and sins, but, but more than that, being aware of how sufficient and amazing our Father in heaven is. Gentleness, patience, loving people sensitively, carefully. Not riding roughshod over broken people, but just like Christ. As he deals with us in a way that is compassionate and kind and gentle and patient. And Paul goes on, 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. It's interesting, it's, if you like this kind of thing, it's a very similar stretch to the first half of the chapter. Again, he starts off with how you treat one another. It's 11 to 15. And then it's again how you speak. 16 to 17, how are we to treat each other, 13 to 15? And we're to forgive and we're to love. And you see why in verse 13, right in the middle there? Do you see, because the Lord forgave you. Do you know, whatever your background, whatever the sin that you're dealing with, whatever your skeletons, whatever the slip-ups and the stories and the stuff that we're so ashamed of, the stuff we've thought, the stuff we say, the stuff that we do, every last bit of it, if you're in him, you have been forgiven by him. And because we have been forgiven by him, then we are to be a people who forgive And I know in a church like this and a room like this, that will mean all kinds of things. We are very different, we are diverse, we are unfinished, we wind each other up, we get stuff wrong. But the fact that Paul needs to write these things to the Colossians, either because he has heard there are issues going on there or he just knows the reality of our hearts, he knows we need to forgive. There's something very earthly about holding on to grudges and about not forgiving. And I'm more than aware of how costly it means to forgive people. Forgiveness always carries a cost. It, it was costly for Christ to make forgiveness possible. It'll be costly for us as we forgive each other. But it might mean making a sensitive beeline to somebody after church or a phone call this week or a letter or an email or whatever it might be. I know this will impact families. This will impact husbands forgiving wives and vice versa, children forgiving parents and vice versa, forgiving one another. And yes, it's costly. And if you're struggling with that, then why not grab somebody after the service and chat it through with them and pray together? Why not come and chat to me or somebody else you've seen at the front or somebody else you know and trust? We know it's complicated, but forgiveness is so important. 
grudges and divisions and grumbling are so natural. Forgiveness is so unnatural. It's so earthly, so fleshly. Forgiveness is abnormal in our current culture. When you look back at church history, you see how Christians have got it wrong. So often. Schisms, splitting, spats over all kinds of really bad reasons. Is there anything in this passage that can help us as we think through this kind of stuff, as we think through perhaps even why churches have got it wrong? I think Paul realises that there is. And I wonder if that's why we transition from 14 to 15 in the way that we do. As he finishes the section, he calls on us to speak to one another and to remind one another through song even. Verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Isn't that striking? We, what we sing, what we sing has such a huge impact on us as a church, on, on believers. It's not just about praising God, that is there, singing to God with gratitude, but actually it's a vertical reminding of each other of the message of Christ. Singing is such an important word ministry, if you like. It shapes people, it shapes churches. It, I mean, clearly that's true. It's not just true in church. There was a Scottish politician um, from the 17th and 18th centuries, Andrew Fletcher, who said this. He said, let me write the songs of a nation. I care not who makes its laws. That's striking. It's the power of song in creating a people, in changing culture, in changing society. And let's be honest here, I am more than painfully aware that what I say lots of the time by Monday morning will have gone. But you might well be humming that hymn for the rest of the week. The songs that get into us and affect us and change us even. The content of our music, the lyrics that we proclaim to each other, form us and shape us as a community. It's why we take so, such care over what we sing, whether we're singing the message of Christ, that it might dwell among us richly and teach and admonish us and be shaped and moulded by it and do us good rather than singing things that are unhelpful. So that the culture is changed, that we might be a place where accounts are kept short where we remember Christ's love and forgiveness for us, and so we love and forgive one another. You see how it's joined up? It's very striking. He finishes up at the end, verse 17. Whatever we do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that seems to be both in context and in summary, whatever we do, since we have been raised, we we put off, verse 5 to 11, the old life outside of Christ, whether words or deeds, and we put on, verse 11 to 16, the new life of the gospel, whether words or deeds, and we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let me pray now.
Father in heaven, we long again to be a church increasingly with minds set on things above where Christ is, seated at your right hand. Help us please to remember who we are, where we are in him, and so to put to death things of the earthly nature, to put those things off, whether things that we do or things that we say, And as your chosen people, holy and dearly loved, might we be increasingly clothing ourselves with the reality of what it means to be in Christ, with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Would we be a a church of forgiveness and love? Would your peace rule here? Might the message of Christ dwell among us as we, as we sing of the beauty of the gospel and of how you treat us, even though we don't deserve it. Thank you for your forgiveness and love for us. In Christ's name, amen.